0: Hey there, you're listening to Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. It's a podcast where we talk about life, music, and spirituality. As we get into this, I just want you to know that it's not about getting you to believe what I believe. It's about asking you to ask yourself why you believe what you believe. Hey there, everybody. It's time for part number two in my look back on the 80s and 90s, my nostalgia series. Some people, they look back at the 80s and 90s with, uh, I don't know, they they loved it. Some people look back, didn't like it so much. I'm just trying to look back, trying to talk about significant events, personal stories, and obviously the music that shaped. I think the music really shapes every decade. you You can't really separate the sound of the 60s from the mindset of the 60s. Same with the 80s. Same with today. It's... It's hard to separate music from history. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, Before we get into the podcast itself, I wanted to remind you that you can support our podcast on an ongoing monthly basis by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Eric Tom As always, a link will be in the description down there, wherever your description is. And you can go and you can give a dollar or five dollars or more every single month. And that will help us build the content that I think is awesome. And I hope you think is awesome. So anyway, we're going to go ahead and get back into uh, the 80s here a little bit. And the thing that I was thinking about, well, have you ever noticed that once you get used to something going right, it's hard to fathom that it could go wrong think about your your car or just events you see things happening in the world and you're just so used to them happening and going well that it's an airplane taking off and landing. you don't really think I mean you think maybe it might not because we do see crashes on the news but for the most part every time you get in your car and you drive to work every time you get on a plane and you go on vacation, you expect to land safely. You expect to get to work. You expect things to work out, because they usually do. On January 28, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger took off at 11.38 in the morning. And since the 1960s, rockets have been going into space, and astronauts have been coming back down. And in 1981, when the space shuttle program started, space shuttles started going up into space, and they always landed. They always came down. So in my mind, I just assumed that when this one went up, it was going to come down. But at 1139 Eastern Standard Time, tragedy happened. I grew up in Oklahoma, so it was 1039 in the morning when we saw the news. And it changed everything. It was no longer safe to assume that things were just going to work. NASA had this reputation of knowing what the hell they were doing. But apparently behind the scenes, they weren't so sure. There's the thing called the O-ring, the uh, the gasket in the rockets. And they've been having trouble with these things. Uh, they allowed some leakage on... Some of the earlier flights, but it seemed like things were okay. They, As the author of the Challenger launch decision, Diane Vaughn, said, they continually expanded the bounds of acceptable risk. Because every time they went up, it worked. Even though things were looking maybe dangerous. And they were especially at risk following cold weather. And the night before the Challenger launch in northern Florida where they were, they had record lows, maybe 18 degrees is what I heard. And that was the thing that did it. They were up against the clock. they had already delayed the mission. They've all, And they had so much pressure. Uh, apparently, NASA was no longer just given free reign like they were in the 60s and 70s. Once they started doing the space shuttles, they thought that they were going to be doing shuttle launches every single week. And they thought because they were being paid by outside sources to take things with them for research purposes by the Department of Defense and, and other uh, outside independent contractors. So it was fact finding, but also research for non-government agencies that were uh, paying for these things. And NASA had this idea that they were going to be completely self sufficient, but this was, they were just behind the clock. So things, the technology wasn't happening the way they hoped it would and thought it would. So they pushed too fast. They tried to do too much. When I was going back and watching this footage over and over again, the thing that really struck me when I was just listening to the audio while watching the space shuttle go up and watching the explosion was how calm the guy seemed. The guy who was basically giving the instructions, talking about how fast they were going saying, you know, this is looking good. We're now doing this many uh, miles per hour or per second, you know, and then the thing just explodes and he pauses for a second and says, obviously a major malfunction and I was just like yeah you think obviously there was a major malfunction I was expecting cries of dismay I was expecting I don't know what I was expecting because there's no precedence for something quite like that but when I watched a different video that wasn't a it had the same audio but it was actually in the room on him, yeah, he was visibly shocked. He was visibly shaken. Um, but he didn't know how else to, in that shock, express that. He just had to keep going because now they have this whole other thing to figure out. So that that was a different side to it. Um, because when I was just watching it as a, like everyone else, watching the news and then going back and watching that footage that we were all watching at the same time, it sounded insensitive, but, I mean, there's just no right way to deal with shock. There's no right way to deal with something that overloads your senses. And when we judge other people by how they deal with crisis, it diminishes their ability to deal with it, I think. Anyway, I'm just kind of shooting from the hip on that right now. So what set this thing apart, Not besides the, the tragedy, was that there was going to be a teacher in space for the first time, a civilian. I mean, that's why everybody was tuning in. This thing was a much bigger public deal than all of the other space shuttle missions, except the first space shuttle mission and then the original uh, space missions in the 60s when they actually landed on the moon and things of that nature. So this was going to be gigantic, especially for school kids. I specifically remember, because I was in the fifth grade when this happened, my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Scruggs in Noble, Oklahoma, big bearded dude who made Civil War figurines out of metal. It's the only thing I remember about him besides the fact that he was super excited about this thing happening. And I think a lot of teachers were. They were jealous um, or envious and also really excited about the opportunity. She was going to give a couple of lessons from orbit, and it was going to be just this amazing thing. And, of course, that got shut down after that. But that's how we were all locked into this. That was how all of these school kids watched this thing because it made it that much more appealing to the public, to the masses. And somehow what made it all the more tragic, I suppose, I would say that it would be a gigantic tragedy no matter what, but somehow this made it all the more memorable. Um... The thing about memory is that it begins to play tricks on what you were doing, where you were. I had heard about a study once that someone, they asked a hundred people where they were when they heard about 9-11. And they told their story. And this was like a couple of months after it happened. They told their story. And a few years later, they asked them again. And so many of them, their story had completely changed where they were, who they were with, because their mind had told them they weren't lying to themselves. They just, the picture in their brain changed. And when they were confronted with that, they said, well, you know, you said this before. And they're like, no, we didn't. And they played back the recording and even hearing themselves, they didn't believe that that was their memory that what they remember now is their actual memory. Like, I have my memory of how I heard about 9-11. But this one, this was even longer ago. I was 11. I was in the fifth grade. And I always seem to remember that I was standing in the lunch line with the TV above the lunch lady's head and w- and looking up and watching that rocket explode in the sky on the television and then looking down And watching that disgusting cafeteria spaghetti hitting my plate in that ice cream scooper, all at the same time. Now, maybe it was a replay. Maybe we didn't watch it live in class, or maybe we had lunch before at ten thirty in the morning uh, in elementary school. But when I saw that the time stamp, when I looked at the time just now, I was thinking my brain must be remembering things wrong or we were just watching a replay. And I'm like, well, we didn't watch it live in class? Anyway, that that's my memory of that particular subject. Somehow, the space shuttle Challenger explosion is linked with really bad spaghetti for me. That's not cool. <laughs> but that was a big, big news story in the 80s and it's funny how memories are tied together. Songs can bring up memories and emotions. Smells can bring up memories and emotions. Sounds, things you see, and for me, spaghetti in the shape of an ice cream scoop brings up one of our nation's greatest tragedies. But my brain is The twisted and sick place. Alright. Well, now it's time to transition into the musical part of the episode. Today, we're going to talk about my favorite, my top five bass players of the 1980s and 1990s. So, here we go. Starting with number five, Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam. The opening riff of the song Jeremy I didn't even know it was bass until I was watching uh, a video on YouTube by a guy named Mike Beato who's a producer and breaks down songs uh, track by track and he showed that it was this guy playing a 12-string bass and then maintains that riff throughout the entire song so I love that song that song reminds me of a lot of things And I might get into that in a different episode of why that song is important to me and meaningful to me. But listen to the song and, you know, it'll make you cry. Anyway, whether it's because of the music or because of the lyrics, beautiful song, beautiful bass playing. So for no other reason than that riff that goes throughout the entire song, uh, Jeff Ament is on my list. Number four Tim Comerford from Rage Against the Machine. Rage Against the Machine, I didn't even start appreciating them until the late 90s. Um, but Rage Against the Machine, the three guys, um, the, the drummer, the bass player, and the guitar player Tom Morello, They once Rage broke up, they brought in Chris Cornell and formed Audio Slave and in the late 90s into the early 2000s and just were awesome so awesome that's like the tightest rhythm section i've ever heard those three guys together and so i'll pick a rage or audio slave song just to put in the description down there for you to uh, listen it's just driving he he drives things man and he's got He keeps those riffs going so Tom can do those crazy DJ guitar effects. Um, And he's got the most unique tattoos I've ever seen on a rock star. They're not just sleeves of a lot of different things. It's just like wearing a black half t-shirt and then where he doesn't have tattoos is the design. I don't have any tattoos. My pain threshold is... Probably not there, but I thought it looked pretty cool, but not as cool as his bass playing. I'm flying through these things just because, I mean, why belabor the point? Number three for me is Les Claypool from Primus. From a strictly talent standpoint, he might be the top bass player, not just of the 80s or 90s, but he could be in the top five ever, but for me... I liked the music and it has a really great groove and he leads from the bass um story about Les Claypool when Cliff Burton the bass player from Metallica died in that bus wreck in Europe they were looking for a new bass player and auditioning people and Les Claypool is one of the people that came in for an audition and as the guys from Metallica put it he was too good that they just didn't feel like they would be able to keep up, which is saying something because they're pretty freaking awesome. And Metallica is just an amazing, amazing band. But Les Claypool from Primus, my number three bass player of the 80s and the 90s. Number two, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Again, a lot of people would maybe put him at number one. I love the slap bass technique. I love the funk. He could do anything. and he is a big part of the Chili Pepper sound. Maybe the. Ah, it's hard to say. Anthony Kiedis' voice, Chad Smith's drumming, and for me, John Frusciante's guitar playing. Whenever they had any other guitar player, to me, the band just wasn't the same. So maybe that's why I have uh, Flea at number two instead of number one. But there's some seminal performances. Um, there's nothing he could do to be higher on the list. I just have Cliff Burton at number one from Metallica. Um, his ripping solos, the way he attacks the bass, he attacks it like a lead guitar player, which appeals to me. So he probably doesn't play the inversions um, like a lot of bass players might. When someone's playing a G, he's not playing a B. Uh, I think he's playing lead guitar on a bass because that's what they needed in Metallica. He did what they needed for those first three albums, which were... they just defined heavy metal. It's not as heavy as some of the stuff that got put out later. Not by Metallica, obviously, but by other bands, because metal just evolved into a different thing. But those first few records by Metallica metallica does to me what ac dc does to me and i think i said this in the last episode they just make me move i don't have a choice i i like to be in control of my faculties i like to know what i'm doing but for some reason when metallica starts playing my head just starts moving man so cliff burton my number one bass player so those are my top five maybe you can tell me who you think is better There are some great bass players I'm leaving off because I wasn't into that music back then. I've gotten more into some of the music from my childhood as I've gotten older, but that's why it's nostalgia. You look back and go like, that was really great. It's better than it is now. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Quick story. My son, this won't be released today, but he turned 13 years old today. Today is April the 9th. And he turned 13, my other son is 9, and my youngest is 4. But my two oldest, they've always been in the classic rock because they listen to what I listen to. And I've always wanted them to develop their own taste in music and listen to things that were modern, but I didn't really push giving them the opportunity. We homeschool them, and the homeschool co-ops that we're involved in, there's not a lot of uh, opportunity for radio play or different music so I don't really know how but sometime in the last couple of months they both got into hip-hop some anyway some some hip-hop even though I think they would say that the Beatles AC/DC, and Johnny Cash are still their favorites they've been walking around mumble rapping and I'm like okay and in my mind like immediately I want to go like it's not as good as the music I grew up with but that's just my own nostalgic way of looking at things that people who grew up with Frank Sinatra thought that Elvis Presley was just too much and they're like oh this music this music is crap these kids and they're Elvis Presley And then just six or seven years later, the Beatles came out and everyone who grew up on Elvis were like, oh man, this is trash. Elvis Presley is real music. And then the Rolling Stones. And I mean, that that was all in the same generation. And then disco came out and there's a whole bunch of kids listening to disco and then metal came out. And then, and so every generation, somebody always thinks that whatever's happening sucks because what they listened to was real music. So, I'm really trying to keep an open mind and be completely okay to a certain extent with what my kids listen to and help them develop their own taste in music and be their own person. Of course, I'm going to have to try to make sure it's not full of attitude and full of things that are going to come back and bite me, like a lot of cussing and things like that, because, you know... Only one of us can have a potty mouth in this family, and that's me, I think. Well, anyway, it's called adult language for a reason, damn it. All right, kids. Don't be an asshole. Like me.